For the week of April 18th, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On the show this week, it is all about two important events coming up this Saturday. First, we talk with Joshua Troopin. He is the chairman of the Washington 8th Congressional District Committee, and they are holding a democracy fair. We'll tell you all about that. And then, in advance of the climate marches, we talk with Stina Jansen. She is a field organizer for the Washington Environmental Council, and she'll give us a preview of the many things that they have planned for this weekend. And then, per usual, we will have our dose of good news, followed by our weekly call to action. My first guest is Joshua Troopin. As I mentioned in the intro, he is the chairman of the Washington 8th Congressional District Committee, meaning he is going to be instrumental in helping us repeal and replace a certain 8th District congressman who goes by the name of Dave Reichert. Maybe you heard of him. Uh, I started out our conversation with Josh by asking him to just give us an overview of the particulars of the 8th District, specifically where it sits geographically, which is kind of interesting. So the 8th Congressional District is unique because, uh, to the best of anyone's knowledge, this is the first time a congressional district in Washington has been drawn across the Cascades. Right, yeah. So it's a sprawling district, and it's about three and a half hours to drive from one end to the other. And it goes uh, from Pierce County all the way up to Wenatchee and out to Ellensburg, cutting a path through Issaquah. Um, Prior to the redistricting in 2012, it was a more compact district on the east side of Seattle. And it was pretty close then. It was um, Reichert and Jennifer Dunn before him uh, would win the district by a few points. It might be Mm 52-48 or something close to that. Um, They extended the district to make the seat a little bit safer for Reichert by moving some of it over to the more rural areas over in Kittitas and Chelan and Douglas counties. So right now, it's been roughly 60-40 in most races for Reichert. But at the same time, uh, our presidential candidates, going back several cycles, have won the district as well. And by our, I mean the Democratic Party candidates. Yeah, and I think for that very reason, the DCCC has targeted this district as uh, certainly winnable in uh, 2018. I want to get into that in a little bit. But first, I'd like to shift over and talk specifically about your committee and what it does. And I'd like to start with uh, something that is mentioned in the About Us section on your website. Uh, It talks about upholding democratic values as part of your mission. There has been a lot of talk post-election about how specifically democratic values are defined. This split was particularly pronounced among the Bernie-Hillary divide. How do you define democratic values in light of that? Well, there are certain core values that, in my view, all or you know, most Democrats uh, share. And a lot of what we went through last year was really a discussion about how far people wanted to go with particular values. So I think that every Democrat would agree that we need to improve health care coverage for all Americans, uh, that we need to have a, an economy where people can afford 
to live. And we've really moved away from that over the past uh, 30, 35 years of Reaganomics. You know, most Democrats will agree that we need to stop the cycle of endless wars and military spending where we just basically send money overseas to blow it up. And then we have bridges that fall down here. And, you know, we need to not only protect Social Security and Medicare, but continue to improve it. Uh, One of the greatest success stories of the 20th century has been Social Security, whereas we used to have about 50 percent of our elderly Americans basically starving. And now that number is down in the low single digits because we're giving basic uh, services and assistance to people, things that they have earned through their lifetime. And just respect of all Americans, no matter what their religion, heritage, orientation, preference, skin color is. And these are things that sometimes it feels frustrating because we feel like we are on defense because there's so much stuff. It's like a tennis ball machine popping at you all the time. But I, I really feel that we can not only defend against things like transgender bathroom bills, but also go on the offensive. And I think that voters will respect us more when we don't only say, well, we have to protect the ACA, but let's push for Medicare for all, single payer or public option, and keep advancing the story even when it might feel that we're on the defensive. So one of the narratives that has emerged post-election is that of the disaffected blue-collar worker who switched his or her vote from Obama in 2008 to Trump in 2016. I'm curious to get your thoughts about that generally, but specifically I'm curious what your thoughts are on how that might be a factor in the 8th District in Washington. Well, I, I, it's, it's a tough question, um, simply because a lot of those votes did vanish so quickly. If you look at a state like Michigan, there was about a 450,000 vote swing really quickly between 2012 and 2016. And I don't think that there's one specific factor that we can say, oh, it's because of this, it's because of the Russians or because of third parties or something like that. But there was definitely a combination of factors. It's my personal belief, and this is something that I don't know if it can even be properly tested, but I think that we definitely got away from speaking to our values. And much of the campaigns that we saw last year were centered around, look how bad this other guy is. (laughs) And everyone already knew how bad, you know, President Boss Baby was going to be. So doing that really didn't change the fortunes much. I think that if we had talked about what we were going to do to make your life better, I think that that would have um, made more of a difference in this campaign. And I think that we just have to keep talking about how our policies can lead to a better future for everyone. 
Yeah, it's basically motivating people through positivity as opposed to negativity yep. or avoidance, I guess. Uh, I want to talk about the democracy fair that you have coming up on the 29th in a little bit. But first, I would like to talk about another one of the components of your website. And it's a it's a mission statement in which you talk about turning citizens into voters and voters into activists. Uh, so I, because you mentioned what you felt were untapped pockets or demographics of voters within the 8th District, uh, citizens who could potentially be turned into voters, what's your specific strategy for getting some of those people energized enough to, say, come out and vote Democrat? Well, one one of the things that we've been doing, and this has been really something that many of the grassroots groups have been doing so well, is to just start making the first connection. And from a Democratic Party standpoint, that can mean um, making people into precinct committee officers or PCOs. Um, We have so many spots that are still open. But uh, since the election, we've seen people wanting to become active. And the reason they want to become active is because they want to make things better. They saw what happens when we perhaps take things for granted, even if we don't feel we were, it, it wasn't enough to get us over the line in many cases last year. So the issues turn people into voters, and then the voters, if they feel that they can make a difference and they can be welcomed into the party, can take the next step and become a precinct officer and really start to organize their neighborhood. And we've seen, obviously, indivisible groups spread like wildfire outside the structure as well. Um, We really need to give people a reason not to give up. And I think that if we, again, keep talking about our values and what we're defending and what we're pushing for, it will give people hope for the future and give them something to work their hardest for. Uh, let's talk about the mechanics uh, a little bit of how the party system works as it sort of filters its way on down to you in the 8th District. Ultimately, yep. the goal of your, organiza- uh, of your organization, your committee, is to turn the 8th blue. Um, yep. The DCCC has targeted the 8th as a district. They do think that they can win. They will be uh, funneling resources to the 8th. Uh, will you be coordinating with them? Yes, I'm, I am already working uh, with the DCCC. Uh, we have... Um, oh, and I should mention that the DCCC is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Uh, anyway, so please continue. So they are the organization, basically, that exists to elect House Democrats. Right. Um, they reorganize, like the DNC. The DNC is the Democratic National Committee, And over the years, the DNC has kind of drifted into focusing on the presidential race. And it's our hope that we are moving them back to a 50-state strategy so they pay more attention to all of our little races down here. Um, Right before the chair election of the DNC, I was in a small group that spoke with Tom Perez, and he... um, And he's the head of the DNC now. He is now the head of the DNC, and... He is working on a 50-state strategy where they look at what each state has and what they need. One state might need more voter registration, for instance, and the other might need more media training, for instance. So he is active in doing 
things like that now. And it's been, you know, just a month or two, but we will start to see more returns coming up over the next two years with this strategy. Now, for the DCCC, I've put together a strategic plan that covers the district, how we improve voter turnout, how we speak about Reichert, how we uh, support our candidate. And there are 15 races in the Western section of the United States that the DCCC considers a top tier. And they rate races by tier, first tier, second tier, and so on. Seven of the 15 alone are in California. Uh, Washington's 8th district is the number one top tier race in Washington state. The unique thing about the 8th is that it's D plus three. So you, we had about three points more for uh, Secretary Clinton in 2016 than we had for um, Mr. Trump. Yeah, let's talk about that, because climate marches. Right. And uh, the other benefit that we have is that our neighboring member of Congress, Denny Heck, is the recruiting chair of the DCCC. So they have a special interest in flipping this district. So I expect to see a lot of resources on both sides focused in here. Uh, Representative Reichert already has a few hundred thousand dollars in the bank. And unfortunately, campaigns are run with money. <laughs> yeah, that is that is a truism. Uh, the, yeah, Washington State is getting a lot of juice right now. Uh, the 8th District will be definitely getting juice. Uh, the 45th uh, State Senate District, which we uh, had mentioned in a previous show, is also oh, yeah. going to be getting a national spotlight because that could potentially flip the State Senate blue and turn the entire state blue. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, you say that these, these number of little races are what are getting Getting, uh, a lot of the the DCCC and the DNC's attention, but in fact, uh, I think the House has the greatest chance of reverting back to the Democrats, and that could be a real game changer in terms of pushing back against the Trump agenda. So, um, obviously, the we all know what the stakes are. Um, do you know if there are candidates who are currently being vetted to run against uh, Dave Reichert, or is it too early at this point? Uh- some some uh, races have candidates who are emerging right now. Uh, we have I've spoken to uh, close to a dozen candidates so far. So there is a lot of interest. We've had some people explore it and step back, um, but we are confident that we're going to have a uh, strong candidate coming out of this process. And one of the things that we want to do as the Democratic Committee in the 8th CD is make sure that it's not King County centric necessarily this time. We want to make sure that all the candidates who are interested, that we get them in Pierce County, South King County, North King County, uh, up to Wenatchee, out to Ellensburg, so that we don't forget about the um, districts out in more rural areas. And that's really quite important to me, is that everyone in the district feels like they're being paid attention to. Otherwise, there's no reason for them to come out and you know, support us and vote. 
Well, I think that's obviously going to be central to your strategy, right, in order to uh, deal with the fact that the 8th has been redistricted to include some of these more rural areas. You're going to have to find a candidate who can speak to them, right? Absolutely. And there really is, you know, we we look at the numbers and it's easy to think that, well, you know, we're only getting you know, 32% in Chelan County right now. But they had an empty chair town hall uh, shortly after um, our current president uh, took office, and they had about 400 people show up out in Kashmir between Wenatchee and uh, Leavenworth. So there is a lot of interest out there right now, and I think a lot of people are starting to realize that they can't keep voting like that anymore. We actually covered it on the show. And hello to you, Michael Nash, if you're listening. Uh, So let's talk about the democracy fair that you have coming up on the 29th. Uh, First of all, what's the intention of the fair? So uh, what we're doing on the 29th is we are going to be hosting our first organizational meeting of the ACD Democratic Committee. Uh, So what we're going to do is all elected PCOs who live in the 8th CD, and there are about just short of 220 of them, uh, will have a vote to decide who the permanent chair, the vice chair, treasurer, secretary of the organization are going forward. So I wanted to, so after I created the bylaws for the organization and the website and the PAC, I wanted to give people a voice to make sure they approved of the way I was doing things. Um, So we're also inviting any grassroots groups who are interested to come and set up and talk with uh, voters before the uh, speech part of the event starts. I do believe you're speaking to some indivisible groups right now. So uh, let them know where it's going to be and when and all that good stuff. So... um, April 29th at noon at Mount Sai High School, and that's kind of in between Snoqualmie and North Bend. And we, I'm, so I'm lining up a number of speakers, and um, the biggest one is probably Congressman Derek Kilmer, who is out on the peninsula, mm-hmm. who has agreed to come speak. Uh, it's all, that part is tentative because uh the government may shut down because of the Republicans on the 28th. Um, They cannot agree on their own budget. As the Democrats sit back, we can't stop you. If they can't agree on their own budget, then the government might have a shutdown and uh, members of Congress may be detained in D.C. All right. Well, I'm sure you'll you'll have a, a pretty full lineup nonetheless. Uh, so what are some of the things that you're going to be discussing uh, during the, the democracy fair? We have not only representatives from Indivisible scheduled to speak, but we have other groups such as Whole Washington scheduled to appear. And their primary mission is to actually get to single payer health care for all and doing it, building it through Washington State. In addition, uh, we are having representatives from various Democratic organizations in the 8th CD, uh, various county chairs. Uh, as I mentioned, Congressman Kilmer is scheduled to appear. Tina Pawlodowski, who is the chair of the state Democrats, is also spe- scheduled to kick the meeting off. 
and we have congressional aides coming. So I wanted to look at this from all different angles, from grassroots to actual elected officials, to give a, as full a view as we can of how the party is doing and how activism is doing in the 8th CD. I assume that as the 2018 election looms that you're going to need some help. Uh, so how can, how can people get in touch with you if they want to help out with the work that you're doing? We always welcome help from everyone uh, who wants to pitch in. The easiest way is to either come to our meeting on the 29th or just email me. And the official email for the organization is 8th Dems, number 8-T-H-D-E-M-S at gmail.com. And we also have a website by the same name, uh, 8thdems.org. For some reason, no one had that registered. So when you see something that someone doesn't have registered, you don't ask questions. That's right. You just pay GoDaddy your uh, your two ninety nine and you're on your way. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got all kinds of stuff. I've I have designed and we've sold several hundred dollars worth of buttons. Actually, right. Um, some of them say "Where's Reichert." Some of them have a "No forty five in reference to our forty fifth president. Uh, we have fake president buttons. I have uh, new ones coming up that say "Over his head." So there are um, a number of designs of interest, and they've proven to be quite popular at various events. Excellent. And if people want to buy some of that merch, they can go on the website as well, right? Uh, They can click the merch button on the (laughs) website, in fact. All right, Joshua Trubin. Thank you so much for joining us, man. And great great work uh, with everything that you're doing. And we'll look forward to seeing you at the Democracy Fair. Right. Thank you so much. Time now for this week's call to action, beginning like we do with some good news. Overall, good news is it's been a pretty bad week for Trump. First, the proposed border wall is off the table, meaning our country won't be wasting billions of dollars on something that officials who actually govern in the districts where the wall would have been constructed say won't work. Most of those officials are Republicans, uh, it should be noted. And hey, Mexico is supposed to pay for all that, right? In any event, this is cause for celebration for the indivisible movement, because one of the things that made the wall politically impossible was the fact that constituents called their members of Congress and said they reject any spending in the budget for it. In fact, if memory serves, it was our call to action last week. So, great job, everybody. Another bit of good news we can share is that a federal judge in San Francisco blocked any attempt by the Trump administration and by Jeff Sessions and the Department of Justice in particular to withhold any funding from sanctuary cities. Quote, federal funding that bears no meaningful relationship to immigration enforcement cannot be threatened merely because a jurisdiction chooses an immigration enforcement strategy of which the president disapproves, the judge said. The rather long list of cities targeted by the DOJ for funding cuts did not include any in Washington, most notably Seattle, but most experts agreed that it was likely going to wind up on the list eventually if the initial action by Session and co. was allowed to proceed. It turns out it is not, at least while the legal appeals happen. And generally, we can celebrate the fact that the Trump administration has failed to achieve any of its 100-day goals. The 100th day will be on the 29th, by the way. This seems like 
like an eternity. Uh, in any event, Trump's list of things he promised to do on his first 100 days, detailed in his Make America Great Again list, included his Muslim ban, repealing Obamacare, labeling China a currency manipulator, and hilariously cleaning up corruption in Washington. And, yes, the border wall, and cutting off funding to sanctuary cities. So, great job, everybody. Let's keep the pressure up, because it is working. So, this week's call to action is to attend either the democracy fair that Joshua Troopin just told us about, if you happen to live in the 8th District, or head to one of the many climate march events that are happening across the state on Saturday, which you will hear all about in just a moment. As a sign I saw protesting cuts to the EPA said, there is no planet B. So, there you go. Head out to a meeting or march this weekend. Uh, By the way, I will have detailed information on all of these events on the SoundCloud page. And that is this week's Call to Action. My next guest is Stina Jansen. She is a field organizer with the Washington Environmental Council, an organization that is celebrating its 50th year doing the work that it does, work that in part includes bringing together over 20 groups to form the Environmental Priorities Coalition. That coalition aims to advance environmental issues in the Washington State Legislature. I should mention that the issues the coalition is taking to the legislature this year are water for people, farms and fish, oil transportation safety, and reducing toxic pollution in all communities. And you may discern from that list that one of the things the group fights against is institutional racism that often results in communities of color being disproportionately affected by environmental degradation. Another issue that affects us here in the state is, of course, jobs. And I started by asking Stina about what many people perceive to be a binary between choosing the environment or choosing jobs. Well, we have to think about the fact that we need jobs now and we need jobs in the future. And if we build an economy in such a way that it's a a flash in the pan, it's boom and bust, we continue to dig ourselves into this cycle where, um, you know, communities are forced to move or displaced or um, where we're really decimating the ecosystems that we rely on, um, both for jobs and, of course, for good quality of life, um, for clean air and clean water and um, and the, keeping our fisheries um, healthy and, you know, maintaining our salmon populations and all the things that make Washington's economy work. Um, these are really these are the backbone of our economy. And they're also, of course, um, ecosystems that um, the indigenous communities of this region have been stewarding for thousands of years. And so there's a, a trust and treaty responsibility to preserve them as well and to, to support the native nations that are doing so. Um, and so, you know, uh, I think we we need to really melt that wedge, that artificial wedge that's been created between the environment and between jobs. We need to find a way forward that enables us to develop um, a clean energy economy that does and enable, you know, pathways for workers who are displaced out of these um, kind of these dying economies to be able to make good livelihoods. Um, and that's certainly important to me coming from the Olympic Peninsula. And I think it's important, hopefully, to folks across the political spectrum that we need to be thinking forward. And, you know, Washington, I think, is leading and we work closely with Oregon and California as well in terms of developing and building, you know, what this future clean energy economy will look like. Um, and there's going to be, I think, a lot of roles for folks to plug into that work actually pretty soon. Um, the, you know, throughout these events that are happening in the coming weeks, we're building momentum and we're developing a broader and more robust community of leaders, um, local leaders, who are going to be leading the charge um, if the policy doesn't pass in the legislature. 
we might have to look at the option of taking that to the ballot in 2018. So there's going to be a lot of doors to knock on, a lot of conversations to have, specifically around this question. Why, you know, why do we need climate policy that is equitable and that is just and that does have a lens for creating a sustainable economy that works for everyone? Um, those are the conversations that we have want to have, and I think those are the conversations that will allow us to start to break down that kind of artificial divide between jobs and environment. We know those things go hand in hand, and they need to if we're going to be able to address climate change in any meaningful way um, and and make Washington's economy um, prosperous for for generations to come. Yeah, I mean it's so timely, and I mean obviously uh, most climate scientists are saying that not only is time of the essence, but in some climate scientists are saying that we might even be a little bit too late. Um, talking about the other Washington, uh, the Trump administration and the GOP Congress are intent on rolling back pretty much every protection put in place by the Obama administration. They're reviving coal mining. They've given the green light to the you know Keystone and DAPL pipelines. Um, the EPA director, Scott Pruitt, is a climate science denier who has signaled that the U.S. should pull out of the Paris Climate Accords. It's really mind boggling, actually. Um, so I, I will just ask you specifically, what are some of the ways that the Washington Environmental Council is pushing back against all of this? I mean, I think government here is a little bit more favorable within the state. And you also mentioned Oregon as well. Uh, but I, I'm curious to know some ways in which the tone and legislation that's coming out of Washington right now is affecting us here in the state? Well, because I think our, our federal administration has demonstrated that not only will it, you know, fail to take the action that we need to take in terms of meaningfully addressing climate, but it will actively deny that climate change is an issue, that it will dismantle right. the successes that we've had, the projects and the programs and the protections that, you know, it's taken many people many years to um, to pass, we need to take leadership into our own hands at the state level and at the local level. And we are seeing communities rise up, of course, and demand um, and build um, the, the kind of agenda that we need at the state level. And of course, we see our work being modeled, hopefully, by uh, modeling for other states across the country as well. Um, so some of the ways that we're doing this, you know, we've been fighting um, fossil fuel infrastructure projects all over the state for years and have had some really key successes um, that, you know, in some ways kind of break down that um, that transit corridor for coal to make its way uh, to export. So um, an example is, you know, we've defeated the oil industry in Vancouver um, by stopping the largest oil by rail project in North America there, uh, working together with communities on the ground and many other organizations in partnership. And we're going to keep doing so. I mean, of course, we have to celebrate that um, Native nations are leading in this regard as well. You know, you mentioned um, the Dakota Access Pipeline and Keystone XL. And here in Washington State, the Lummi Nation had a really great victory um, last year in, in defeating um, the, the coal terminal up on Cherry Point. So I think we're going to keep building on the successes. And we also need to be looking, uh, I think, not only to what it is that we need to fight back against, but what is it that we need to build? And, you know, we were kind of speaking about this earlier with climate. Like, we have an opportunity really to build a vision here in Washington State um, and to model the kind of uh, clean energy incentivizing 
uh, revenue, you know, distributing kind of policy that it's going to take, um, not only to say no to these kinds of fossil fuel projects, to say, but to say yes to the economy that we do need. Um, so we, I think we have a lot of, of opportunity to do that in the future, and we're not going to let the federal government hold us back from it. We need to take leadership here at the local level. I am very proud to be a Washingtonian. I have not always been, but I am ex- extremely proud in because of so many of the ways in which the state has very substantively pushed back against uh, the Trump administration and and the GOP. And uh, so, yeah, I, I like I like what you're saying about modeling. I think it's great. So, um, on Saturday the twenty second, uh, last Saturday, in honor of Earth Day, there were science marches across the country and also here in the state. How did WEC participate in that? So. You know, Saturday marked the beginning of what we're calling a week. We and many other organizations are calling um, a week of action from Earth Day to May Day. And so Saturday marked, you know, Earth Day um, with many events happening all across the state, including the the March for Science, um, which is such a great opportunity to highlight the importance of science and the scientific method in terms of you know, evidence-based policy and setting policy um, to protect the health of many of communities and our ecosystems. Um, Washington Environmental Council and Washington Conservation Voters were a sponsor. We had a staff at uh, Duwamish Alive, which was a really exciting um, event that has happens annually to do cleanup in the Duwamish River, which, as you know, has, has been a, a site of a lot of pollution. Um, there have been Gosh, lots of Earth Day events all over the state. Um, I'm mostly focusing on our climate events. Yeah, let's talk about that, because climate marches are happening uh, on Saturday the 29th uh, across the country. The largest, I think, is expected to be in D.C., but several are happening here across the state in Washington. I actually count 13 separate events. There may be more or less, but it's somewhere around there. Uh, What do you guys have planned for that? So, yes, on April 29th, which is this Saturday, you know, I expect there to be thousands of people who are concerned about climate marching all over the state of Washington, all over the country, in fact, Um, perhaps even globally, I'm not sure. But um, we know that a lot of these marches now have taken on a global character as the Science March did. Um, So in Washington state, um, the the marches are happening uh, in Seattle, of course, but also in very small communities. Um, Like the one I grew up in, I grew up near uh, Port Angeles out on the peninsula. They're happening on the San Juan Islands and Langley and Twisp, Washington, um, in Richland and Tri-Cities and Spokane. So really, um, you know, anywhere in any region that you are in the state of Washington, there's probably a people's climate march somewhere within some kind of reasonable uh, commuting distance, uh, carpooling distance. I hope that, you know, your listeners will go and uh, and March. I think these are going to be really uh, energizing mobilizations, um, hopefully with some really beautiful visuals and a really great opportunity for um, community organizations working across many issues, many issues pertinent to the climate change um, to come together. In Seattle on um, April 29th, we're also host after our climate march here, um, which I believe is at 10 a.m., we're hosting a People's Climate Action Summit, and that is at Seattle University from 12 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. So it's a pretty long event, um, but there's a lot to do during that time. It's a summit, so it's, it's really chock full with about 20 workshops, maybe over 20 workshops, that all highlight the connection between issues of social justice and climate change. 
Um, so, you know, workshops on um, why and kind of what we talked about earlier, why climate change is deeply an issue of worker rights. And we need to be concerned with um, the transition from fossil fuel based jobs to clean energy jobs. Why climate change is an issue of justice for farm workers who are working in the fields. Why climate change is an issue of transit justice. So there's going to be folks from tr the Transit Riders Union, I think, um, talking about their work to make uh, the transit system in, in King County, at least, much more fair and work better for bus riders and, and transit riders, which obviously is a really great component of the action that we need to take um, towards a, uh, a clean energy economy and a economy less dependent on lots of cars on the road. Um, so that's going to be a really fun event. Again, that's um, Saturday, uh, April 29th from noon to 530. And um, lots of really fast paced, fun uh, workshops that are really interactive, and I think a big art space. So really encourage folks to make it to that. That's a great way to get plugged in and become more active with climate justice issues, um, and to plug into different organizations. And then um, our final event in this Earth Day to May Day uh, week of action is, of course, the May Day March, which is an annual tradition. May Day is celebrated around the world as a day um, celebrating the rights of workers. And especially in, um, in Washington state, these are really wonderful marches to highlight the rights of um, immigrants and their immigrant-led marches. So... Um, <laughs> in Seattle, uh, we're having an additional climate justice contingent that will be joining into that um, May Day March and highlighting the connection again between climate change, immigrant rights, and worker rights. So that's starting with a, a very snappy little rally at 10 a.m. meeting at the skate park at Judkins Park on May 1st. That's in central Seattle. Um, and then culminating in, in joining into the, the uh, May Day March at 11 a.m. for the rally in Judkins Park. And there are also, I think I said, May Day marches happening in Bellingham and Yakima as well. So that's also statewide. Well, you guys have just a ton of stuff going on, and I will make sure to provide a link to all of that on the website. But Stina Jansen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Stefan. It was great to be with you. And that is it for this week's Washington State Indivisible podcast. And uh, like I said, I will have information about all the events that Stina and also Joshua talked about on the SoundCloud page. So check it out there. And do keep hitting me up with emails, questions, and show suggestions at WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. Again, it is WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to Joshua Troopin and Stina Jansen. And thank you, as always, for listening. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.